Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're very welcome to this week's podcast, Memories of Irish Architects in a Century of Change. Hi, Maurice O'Keefe. And over the last few years, I've been involved in recording people who contributed in some way towards the development of Ireland since the foundation of our state in 1922. And this project, A Century of Change, can be seen on our website. And in doing so, I wanted to find people who inspired new ways of thinking about architecture and to improve the quality of our lives architects who were dedicated to their profession and in this podcast you will hear memories of being introduced to architecture for the first time and he brought me in the car he brought me along with him where the inspiration came from to go on and study architecture there was one artistic event in my pre-college years that impacted on me it was the rusk exhibition the educators. Then when I became professor, I decided what I needed was to get rid of the, all the older architects who had been teaching me and hadn't a brain in their head. And the students. So instead of doing the projects that we were set to do, we spent our time writing counter-projects that we thought we should be doing. And fighting for recognition. My degree was not recognised over here. And memories of bringing new ideas back from another country. And when I came back to Cork, I was so full of everything I saw in America. And wanting to change the way things had been done. I an optim optimistic belief that we might change the world, you know. So let's get started. I first asked Alex White in Cork what was his introduction to architecture. My first introduction to architecture probably goes back to a very troubled time in Irish history which is the 1920s and the RIC barracks had been destroyed in Ross Carberry and the local Republicans came and burnt my grandfather's house to prevent it being used by the militia in the 50s, I saw that house in ruin. I saw the trees growing up through it. And in a way, it was my first introduction to the abstract world of the architect. The pattern of the stairs that were gone 
was still imprinted on the wall. You could see the brickwork around the chimneys. You could see the masonry, the stonework, and the plaster, and the, the layers of plaster that were there. And I asked Joan O'Connor, where did her inspiration come from? I ha- always had an ability to read drawings. I always had a great interest in art. I can remember the 1967 Rusk exhibition in the RDS having a huge and profound impact on me as to the influence of modernism in painting and in sculpture. And that translated into an interest in buildings in their modern form. Mm -hmm. And I think if there was one artistic event in my pre-college years that impacted on me, it was the Rusk exhibition. It was an opening of my eyes to a completely different and adventurous world of art and design from that, from the the neoclassical education which most of us would have had in the arts. Neil Scott recalls his early memories of being brought to the building sites with his father, Michael Scott. On Sundays, this is when I was a child, on Sundays, after Sunday lunch, he was going to visit the sites. He didn't have time during the week. He was going to visit the sites, like the bus station, and John Sisk Sis built it, and old John Sisk, who started the company, he would be there in his uh, hat and thing, and hello, Mr. Scott, too. And my father, with the principal of the company, would go around, the contractor would go around the site, the site, so we'd see what they were doing. So just himself and the contractor. And he brought me in the car. He brought me along with him. I see. All to all these things at the age of five. So I was on the bus station site at the age of seven, eight, nine, Donnybrook Garage, all the things there, Inchicore, you know, your chassis factory, you know, the four provinces ballroom now demolished. You know, all these. Are, so, so for some reason he took me and he always said, Neil is going to be an architect which is, you know, I wasn't asked. Carl O'Neill and Podrick Murray were friends and remain friends for life. They remember going to the architectural school in Dublin. It went in in 1949. They were in the old, the Ellerthor Terrace. Those rooms were originally built as exhibition rooms. They were enormous and ceilings, triple height ceilings. Like the concert hall, really, that size. That's, that fills one of them. Mm. And our studios were there. It was the biggest class. Ours was the biggest class on record at the time. It's been surpassed since. There were 60 in the class. And there was previously, it was 24, 25. Mm-hmm. And there were 60. And it was an enormous room. And we had four demonstrators, they were called. They were people who showed you what to do and so on. First year, Matthew McDermott was the professor, and he said, he gave us a little lecture when we started off, he says, 66 people in this class, and we have 22 places in second year, for sure. There might be more. Uh, so, it's first come, first served. <laughs> and he said, you're welcome to the architecture, and if you do get through first year and go on, it's five years hard labour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but I remember that lecture, yeah. So I got through and so did Cahill. Podrick Murray left to practice in Belfast to move down to Dublin in 1959 and open his own practice. 
And that's when he got his first big break. I came down here in 59, 1st of April 1959. I started in April Foods Day, my own practice. And then at that point, I got the big break of my life, really. Um, I was asked to design Port Clunone Abbey. In Where? Port Clunone Abbey. Oh, yes. I did Bethlehem Abbey, Port Clunone, in County Antrim. Yeah. And uh, the, and of course, like everything else in my life, there's a story behind that too. If you want to hear it, <laughs> and I um, heard there was a, a Cistercian monastery in County Antrim when I was working when I, when I was in Belfast, so I went out to this thing and introduced myself. I was asked what I did. I said I was an architect. That was all. Uh, I talked to the guest master I saw what was there there was no new buildings they were living in an old house and some prefabs and um, I was got into my car and I was just starting the engine when the guest master came running out and said the farm manager would like to speak to you so I said okay yeah and up comes Father Union who manages the farm and he said I just wondered I heard you were an architect and I said yeah he said, I have a terrible problem in our pigsty. Would you, maybe you could give me some advice. So I went down. So I took out a sketchbook and I sketched a detail and I specified what to do. And I wrote a, a specification out from a sheet of paper. I said, do all those things and that'll cure it probably. <laughs> so it's so, extraordinary. So... Two and a half years... Well, later after that, then, they asked me to advise them about reslating the roof. And then they had a new abbot, and the new abbot said he wanted to see me. And he said, I'm a new abbot, and I've decided we're going to build a new monastery. And he said, I'd like you to do it for us. This happened just at the time when I was saying, what am I going to do? I'd have to get back to Dublin. Maisie's not well, all that kind of stuff. And suddenly the abbot says, we could just me a new monastery. <laughs> so the timing was perfect. Absolutely perfect. <clears throat> Paddy Shaffrey, not knowing really what he wanted to do, followed his brother Philip into the architectural school. But when he was there, he found his own niche. My elder brother was an architect. So I just, I suppose, decided that was it. And what, what college? or what In, in UCD. Now, I found that I never was great at artistic things, sketching. And I found it difficult enough at the beginning. But I probably, my mind was more of a, a planning mind, you know, thinking round. So, but I did, I qualified as an architect. I worked with Philip for a, a few years. He had, he had a small practice. Where was it? In, in, in Dublin. Harcourt Street. And then I got met my wife, Maura O'Brien from Limerick, and we went off to Edinburgh. And, and I was studying town planning in Edinburgh. Oh, that was a good move, yes, wasn't it? For me, yes, it was. And then I was um, looking for a job in Dublin back, I didn't get it. And then I went to Manchester. And that, to me, was the great opening. Manchester was a great city. The planning department was great, and I learned a lot 
from John Miller, a great planner. We used to have meetings every week and there was a lot of slum clearance, a lot of activity in Manchester. And Neil Scott found it very difficult in the beginning trying to find his way. When I went to a school called Gonzaga, which was very good, and when everybody else was uh, agonising over what they were going to do, there was no agonising with me. I was going to be an architect. So off I went and did architecture. But architecture, the beginning of the studying of architecture, drawing is fundamental. It's one of the reasons people do because they're very good at drawing, and that's what my father did in Wentendown. I can't write, never mind draw. So I was so I was an abysmal failure in the beginning, and this is the first year. And I said, uh, "What am I? Do- Why am I doing this?" Mm-hmm. I said, "I didn't choose this. I, you know, this was you know chosen for me." So I gave up. So I thought psychiatry. So if I if I studied psychiatry, so I threw a thing. I worked as so like a porter. I worked in in St Patrick's just doing messages in the thing and. I realised that wasn't for me and I wasn't going to do any help so I gave that up and then I w- thought farming would be very would be very good Obviously. that you physically you'd work you'd want to eat well at night because you'd earned it and that you could still use your mind and read and things like that so I worked on a farm in Kildare again through some other friends and Ronnie Delaney I'll never forget listening to Little Transistor Radio snagging turnips and the feet down miles long a drill and uh, I did that for, you know, for a summer. But Neil persisted and he joined his father's practice. So then I think that really architecture, this interest in listening to my father talking all that, that architecture was what I'd like to do. So I went back to studying it then, really that I had decided that I wanted to do it. And so I did it. he was a big influence in your life, your father and... and and a mentor. Oh, well. more than a, he was. A, he, he was a, an inspiration, and I would say he was. I, I enjoyed his company hugely. I had nothing but admiration for yeah. him. He could not have been more encouraging. In, in my experience, a lot of uh, sons who do the same profession as their father, that I found that the, the fathers very often put them down. They feel challenged by you know the new younger person coming up. And they, you know, sort of denigrate them. But it could not have been further. But the truth, my father was embarrassing when, when he, when he would meet your know, people with me, somebody like Ovarup or somebody, to, or Charlie or whoever. Neil is a better architect than me, which is rubbish. But in 1968, there was trouble brewing in the School of Architecture. The school was recovering from it. It had had a crisis in the late 1960s. Historian architect Shane O'Toole explains. When Desmond Fitzgerald, who was the elder brother of Garrett Fitzgerald and, and the architect of the original airport terminal building at Collinstown in Dublin, Dem Fitzgerald, as he was known, Dem was the, was the professor. And he was people said he was an arrogant man. And he didn't have a whole lot of friends, let's put it like that. Um, And the morale in the school was very poor. 
And so in 1969, there was what was called the Gentle Revolution in Earthford Terrace, and that was led by Owen Lewis, who's a former president of the RDS here and former professor in UCD of architecture, Owen Lewis, uh, Lachlan Keeley, also former professor in UCD, Rory Quinn, um, Frank MacDonald, the environment <laughs> editor of the Irish Times, Kevin Myers. There was a group of people, but the architects were central to it. And the, in the heel of the hunt, uh, they persuaded the RIBA that standards were so bad that the RIBA threatened to withdraw recognition from the course. Owen Lewis was a student at that time. In the university, in UCD, um, our, our group work was ignored in the uh, in fifth year, in the assessment. Yeah. We, it was, uh, the, well, the system, I mean, Dem Fitzgerald was, well, we weren't very popular, firstly, because uh, some of us had been these revolting students. And um, uh, so... Um, we were we were assessed on our uh, on our um, individual buildings, and in fact, uh, none of us, for instance, got uh, we all got past degrees. And John Toomey and Sheila O'Dell remember that time when we when we were students. We we one of the things that brought us together was we were trying to rewrite the educational program for the School of Architecture. I mean, we got together writing manifestos to change the educational structure. So instead of doing the projects that we were set to do, we spent our time writing counter-projects that we thought we should be doing and delivering them to the doors of our tutors and professors and saying, you're doing it all wrong, you should be doing it like this. <laughs> and, um, I mean, we, I, just, yeah, I came mo- across a manifesto <laughs> quite recently that we wrote an A4 typed out on that funny kind of shiny paper with slightly purple. Yeah. It was some kind of a Gestetner or something copy of it. Just about. <laughs> and that meant that there was a full-blown inquiry in UCD. Um, It was led by Garrett Fitzgerald at the time. It led to Dem Fitzgerald uh, retaining his professorship, but being told not to darken the doors of UCD again. So while he retained his title, he could never come into the building or have academic role of any sort in the course again. And, so and, and, and the, the, the staff student yeah. committees were established across the university for the first time. So they were the two outcomes of that. And who were brought in in their place? Here Shane O'Toole explains. The RIBA uh, said if you want to have uh, this course recognised or re-recognised, uh, we're going to recommend someone to you. And they recommended a professor from England called Ivor Smith. Uh, to take over as temporary professor of the, the university or the School of Architecture to get it back on a, a level footing again. And so Ivor Smith uh, brought in what was called um, the Flying Circus because Monty Python was in the air at the time, I guess, and everything like that too. But the Flying Circus was a group of really young, radical architects from London. Edward Jones, Jeremy Dixon, Fenella Dixon... Christopher Cross, Elspeth Cross, Mike Gold. They were part of maybe the most dynamic young uh, architects in London. Uh, They were all graduates of the Architectural Association, the AA School, which was the best school in London at the time. And they were known as the Grunt Group because they, in London, um, because most of them had a speech impediment of one sort or another. And they were supplemented uh, by two architects from Scotland, uh, Andy Macmillan, uh, who was the head of the um, 
the Macintosh School of Architecture in Glasgow, and his partner, Izzy Metstein, mm. who was, as he described himself in our grades, a Scottish-German Jew. And they were tough as nails. And they were all brilliant teachers, um, so that when the studios would close, they would, they would come, they would, they would call the Flying Circus because they were flying for a couple of days, work the studios, and then they'd go back to London. So they were, only, they were coming in and yeah. going out. The Flying Circus was brought in of these other brilliant architects. Robin Mandel remembers that time. But one of them was a, 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 a Hungarian, I think, called George Kasabov. Big guy, really, really, really great guy. But his, he used to make us, when we were doing projects, analyse how much energy it took to make the stuff, how much energy it took to put it together, how much energy it took to run, and how much energy it would take to get rid of it. Right? Now, that was way ahead of its time. We thought it was a bit nuts, but he had this great phrase, which actually, if I were to say what is the bit, that it, it, his term is long life, low energy, loose fit. And that's a really good philosophy. They were so committed, and they fired us up so much. I mean, they introduced us to international architecture, to European architecture, to Le Corbusier and, and people like that. Um, but when the studios would close and would all be thrown out by the porters at 10 o'clock at night, then everyone would go across to Hartigan's Bar, okay. and the discussions would continue. As soon as Carl O'Neill was appointed professor, he started recruiting people like John Toomey and Sheila O'Donnell, who had previously been his students. Then when I became professor, I decided what's needed was to get rid of the, all the older architects who had been teaching me and hadn't a brain in their head. Mm -hmm. They were just not they were just just pocket money and they were just running practices and they weren't coming in half the time. I was getting young people, so I hired a whole lot of people and I did very well. The people that I had been teaching, I I hired them, the good ones. And the people I hired were Yvonne, uh, Yvonne Farley and Shelley McNamara, John Toomey and Sheila O'Donnell. Oh, yes. And they have all won gold medals yeah. from the RIBA. Yes, I think that's, that would be true. And following graduation from UCD, which was when we got together as a couple, just as we walked out the door of UCD, we lived for five years in London and had a really interesting time there. It was, it was a very active time in the culture of architecture, a very inactive time in building because it was a big recession, nobody was building anything, but there was a huge amount of discussion and radical thinking. So we came back here then after five years because actually we wanted to, we felt this was the culture in which we could operate most appropriately and I think we probably did think that teaching was really important then because there's, I think anyone would probably agree that there's a sort of cultural shift or we, we are the beginning of or part of a cultural shift in architecture in Ireland and things were very different in the generations older than us and we were not encouraged by older architects and apart from a wonderful first year in UCD we people who taught us we felt weren't really um, weren't uh, channeling anything about the relationship between architecture and culture and society or also actually about just about excellence and um, focus. But then we were um, then we came here back here to start to teach we, we wanted to bring things back to back to basics back to ground you know and say we're going to start by assuming that everybody has to 
understand and get to know the history of Irish architecture, which we felt had been ignored. We want people to understand the particular characteristics of the, yeah. even the spatial characteristics, the environmental characteristics of the traditions of Irish architecture. So we were, you know, from a point of view of radical change, yeah. we were starting with the idea that you better know the ground you stand on. So I, I'd say there was a very strong element of, you know, unbearability about us when we were, <laughs> when we were young. Angela Brady qualified as an architect from Bolton Street and travelled to London to find that her degree wasn't recognised over there, so she fought for her rights. My academic, uh, my degree was not recognised over here uh, from Bolton oh. Street. UCD was recognised, they could do their what's called their part three exam, which is the final exam yeah. over here before you can call yourself an architect, which is a protected title. You've got to join, it was ARCOC at the time, the Architects Registration Body, yeah. basically. Um, so Bolton Street were being held back. Um, and, you know, I hate to see something that's wrong in principle. You know, I'm a campaigner. I'll fight to get it right with colleagues. So we said, this is ridiculous. UCD can go over here, get a job. They can sit um, their part three course yeah. and then do their exam and then they can call themselves an architect. We weren't allowed to call ourselves architects because our, our, our um, degrees weren't recognised. So um, even though under the EU legislation all of EU recognise each other's qualifications and Bolton Street was on the list and we're saying, look, this is ridiculous. Six years ago this was recognised. What are you going to do about it? Um, so um, Monica Dunn, one of the other girls from Bolton Street and I mm. went to Westminster and spoke to uh, Spud Buckley, the guy there, and said, look, Spud, we're in a catch-22 situation here. Yeah, we want to get equal pay for, the, the you know, we want, we want to, to do our part three. We want to progress over here in London. We see we're going to be here for a few years. We want to be architects like everybody else. Uh, can you let us sit the course? Mm. I know we're not really allowed to sit the course yet, but can we sit the course? And he said, look, I'll sign you on and hopefully you'll have, it so you'll have it sorted out by the time you sit the exam. So Monica and I sat the course, first two from Bolton Street ever to get in to sit the course in Westminster University, um, passed. Then we were allowed to sign up with the ARB and, and it, was, it was through the pressure of the group that we formed called the RIAI London Forum. There was a whole group of us that were fighting for this, uh, this to be this uh, to this recognition, and um, so we got recognition, and then we opened mm. the doors, and then we got the whole course, you know, with people coming over from Dublin to give us the part three course. That was very important, wasn't it? Oh, it was. It was hugely important because you know we were being discriminated against, you know, yeah. wrongly, and the fact that we had we were a campaigning group. And we had Arthur Gibney actually come over with John mm. Graby and Catherine Megan in um, 1983, I think it was, it was, it was 84 and 85. And, uh, and we launched the, uh, the forum, which is still going today. You know, yeah. we celebrated uh, 35 years or 30 years. Joan O'Connor talks about the mistakes that were made in the 1970s. The 70s was a huge era of, of change for Ireland. I mean, our, our engagement with the EU, our self-confidence, um, the mistakes that we made. Um, what mistakes? I think the... the, the, the um, Ballymun was probably the biggest mistake 
Not in the sense of the quality of the buildings, because those apartments were extraordinarily generous in their planning and in their servicing and that, but in the mismatch between the Irish psyche and um, making a brave new world in which nobody really wanted to go. Um, and it, it was if there was one mistake, and it wasn't, it wasn't either the decision to do it, and it wasn't the quality of the buildings themselves. It was just we were blindsided by the mismatch between a continental or a European reality and the reality of the way Irish people live and want to live. It took up a lot of your your career. Uh, it did. Uh, it did. Project managing. How did it come about? How did you? Get into that and start. If you, an architect's training is from the brief for the building to the completion of construction. And if you push that envelope a bit further out so that you encompass identifying the need for a building through to watching it perform in use, you get the idea of the project manager as the, as the professional who puts their arms around the entire of the project and carries it through. And it, 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 when I started as a project manager, probably in 1986-7, it was an emerging discipline. It didn't, didn't really exist except in the petrochemical and um, data industries. So I would have been one of the first practitioners of architect-led project management as a separate discipline. And uh, <laughs> you must tell me how, why. The first building I did was on commission for New Ireland Assurance, when they built their building on South, uh, South Frederick Street and on Nassau Street, part of which was um, Georgian replica and part of which was very elaborate brickwork facade onto which still The building is still there. And that was interesting on every front because uh, the project got extended to include the restoration of two original Georgian houses on Frederick Street and that brought me to working with the, uh, the Civic Trust and brought me into working with people who, who are passionate about conservation and recognising that their needs need, needed to be addressed. I dealt with adjoining owners. I dealt with very difficult site conditions. I dealt with the trolley wire of a tower crane getting snagged around a chimney and snarling up the whole city in traffic. I just, it was a really mind-opening experience. As soon as Neil Hegarty qualified, he travelled around the States and met well-known architects while he was there. And when I came back to Cork, I was so full of everything I saw in America. And um, I, was, I was also interested in uh, an English uh, building company called Span, who were actually building housing, uh, contemporary housing, for sale in the UK. So I went to my father and asked him, uh, would he have any interest in doing something like that? So, of course, he let me off to, to do it. So, um, uh, I designed uh, 36 houses uh, in Black Rock and Gork. Uh, the site was leased, leased, I think it was 600 years or something like that, for 999 years. Um, and uh, those houses... Uh, were int- interesting to a lot of people and uh, there were 36 of them when I looked at the history of Span earlier uh, af- afterwards I found that uh, 36 houses like that would take about 4 million people to sell a contemporary house like that you know yeah. it would need a big population 
But we managed to sell the 36 of them mainly because they were uh, uh, sons of the sort of merchant princes like uh, Peter Barry, uh, who became minister for yeah. uh, an to He had one house there. His brother Peter had another one uh, in the other courtyard. Okay, and but, but, but that was prime property in, in, in a prime location. Was, yes. And they were expensive houses to build. Yeah. Where did the money come from to build them? And Well, they sold very quickly. This was a new idea of cooperative housing and people in Cork saw the value of doing this. We had very good, uh, good help um, from uh, Michael O'Driscoll. Uh, he was a solicitor. And he was very interested in this idea of people building houses for themselves, you know, uh, in groups, cooperative housing. And around that time, Neil Scott remembers in his father's practice, one of his partners coming back from the States with brand new ideas. But Robin came back with a messianic zeal about, you know, Mies van der Rohe, about Mises architecture about the order and the discipline and expressing structure and your know, detail. And he really, you know, convinced Ronnie and convinced, you know, my father that this was the correct way for what buildings will ultimately be made by machines, by doing it that it is all repeat your know, parts. That's the way to go. You're you're pushing your foot in the right direction for the future. Yeah. And there's an order and it's a very classical your know, tradition. And that's 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 we that's what we followed. This was indeed a great time of change in the way that we looked at building, and it's explained here by historian Shane O'Toole. The real uh, gift of modernism, I think, was that it introduced a new social agenda and a social mission into architecture. Um, for example, the hospitals were all built um, um, by Vincent Kelly and by Michael Scott. And Vincent Kelly was sent by the Free State Government uh, on a research trip all around Europe to Germany, to Scandinavia, to check out what the latest health um, uh, approaches were and what the architectural support to those health approaches were all over Europe. Michael Scott, who was an actor with the Abbey Theatre and had been on tour in the United States, so when he would come off stage at night, the next morning he would go when they were in a big city and he would go and see the latest hospital there. So they became the hospital kings in Ireland and it was, it was scientifically and socially driven. Neil Scott recalls one of his first jobs, but it didn't come easy. I was asked by Goffs to do the bloodstock sales complex oh, yes. down in Nace because the RTS, they owned the Goffs where, where the AIB site is now. That's where Goffs had their sales complex and Goffs and the RTS were selling the site to the AIB to build the building that Andy Devan did, and they gave Goffs three years to vacate the place. And so Goffs had either the thing, and part of the thing was that they want, they had their own stables, you know, for their horse shows and all that, that they could use, that they could run the sales complex and make money out of it. That was a subtext. Mm-hmm. So they gained two things. They didn't think that Goffs would persevere. So uh, Goffs uh, took a sounding amongst all the breeders in that. Did they want to be 
in the URGS or should GOFs go, go it alone? And they got the feedback they wanted to go it alone. And uh, so, and they should be outside Dublin because all the horse boxes coming up it didn't make sense. So where, where we're down on the dual carriageway made total sense. That was so near Dublin but on the way in. <coughs> but then uh, the RTS said they were going to build their complex Goffs had acquired the site or the site that they have they were going to build the bankers said it doesn't stand, it's a huge investment too, we must have one so the there was um, we went around, so we I had done a scheme, we had done a scheme for the site that is down in Kill and the RTS didn't have to do a scheme because they had the site, they had it all there so it was put to the breeders to you know the all the different breeding bodies in. Uh, so I went to a roadshow. It was like a debating society showing the golf scheme, the RDS showing there, and we went to Limerick, we went to Waterford, we went to, we went to the different centres, and they voted to back golfs. I, on the optim- optimistic belief that we might change the world, you know, starting from now. <laughs> Des McMahon had just opened his practice in Dublin when he entered a competition for the design of a comprehensive school, which he came third in, and it won him a commission, which had a huge influence on his career afterwards. And uh, we were really doing house extensions and niches and very, very small scale. Where were you? Where was your practice? We were up along the canal near Port, near uh, Portobello Bridge, a little a little terrace called Ontario Terrace, and um, and we were just beginning to make it, uh, just beginning to cut it, uh, and in fact we were premiated. We didn't win it, but we were I think third in a national competition run by the Department of Education here for a new type of. Uh, generic type of second level school called the community schools they wanted a much less rigid form of second level education where the emphasis would go on the individual and social uh, interaction between students not the serried rows of people listening to be fed and to regurgitate information which second level education would have been at that at that time and that was we came third in that, and uh, so we, we were we we expected a commission because the, I think the people who were first got five schools, yeah, and the people who were second got three schools, so we were expecting at least one school. Having passed that test, I think they trusted me sufficiently, and they commissioned me a couple of years later with with a with a commission that really changed my. Changed my attitude towards architecture, re-educated me. So where was this comprehensive school to be built? The building was the senior college in Ballyfermot, which you might have heard of. Uh, it was a part of Dublin where the, lo- the local community had commissioned Trinity College to s- study patterns of school attendance. Uh, and the conclusion arrived was that it was the lowest level of participation 
and, and, and education after the compulsory age of 15 in the EU. My goodness, yes. And so Des McMahon found this perfect site to build the school on. Well, we found this wonderful site in the middle of Ballyfermot, in behind, a trucked in behind a supermarket. But most importantly it was, there was an, an ad hoc pedestrian way through it that people had, people from one, a large population, uh, use it as a shortcut from where they live to the town centre. And, and that was, that was accepted. And that was the, that was the key to the design. Yeah. Uh, so instead of doing a building with steps up which people would climb and be impressed with its institutional grandeur, we did it as a really low profile building with a series of entrances off the pedestrian way. So the building became almost an amorphous uh, thing uh, of what she entered uh, this pedestrian way that everybody was moving up and down anyway, or a lot of people. So it was a totally new... Uh, I'm really proud of that decision, that concept. Okay, but And that concept came just from listening and talking, you know. So instead of architecture, which I'd been trained to imagine, you know, in, in, in the splendor of, of originality, architecture is something which emerges from... From a human requirement, I, and I, and and there's a form of synthesis involved. So the synthesis, of course, is assembling all the the parts that have been analysed, and then trying to create a new totality, which is what we did in Ballyfermot. But in the 1980s, we suffered a downturn in the economy and that affected architects in a big way. And Alex White remembers that time. During the 80s, things got very bad. And a, a, young, a, a, a young man rang me up. He was driving from County Tipperary up to a meeting with the corporation. And he asked me, would I design a stall for him in the English market? <laughs> and I said, be delighted. Yeah. It was the only job I had. <laughs> <laughs> but it was wonderful. So, I went in and discovered yeah. uh, some of the original timber work of the old market, which had been covered up with chipboard and with large signs there was a great kind of uh, I think people's eyesight must have got bad at some stage because they started <laughs> having to make letters bigger and bigger but it is um, uh, restoration is that important to you you know if you come across something that's uh, original and, and um, has been around a long time do you like to preserve it uh, yeah well I worked on Salvin's um, Royal Yacht Club over in Cove and we had to break in first day, we had to get the Gardaí to come with us and go around onto the Logia and break in. But it was wonderful to bring that building back to life and mm -hmm. it serves now as the serious art centre 
named after the first steamboat across the Atlantic, which left here in passage in April 1838. And uh, so it's the SIRUS, named after the stars. But the Sirius Centre has served the town of Cove very well. And when we first worked on it, the young um, curator of the Crawford Gallery, Peter Murray, was on the Restoration Committee. And we succeeded in getting European funding for the restoration work. And in that particular year, the funding went to a Roman viaduct in France and to the Sirius project in Cove. So it was a great kind of honour to work on it. Well, we've come to the end of this week's podcast, Memories of Irish Architects in a Century of Change. And in making this podcast, I selected a number of sound clips that were taken from a collection. And if you would like to see the full collection, you can do so by going on to our website, that's www.irishlifeandlore.com. I'm Morris O'Keefe, and I look forward to bringing you another podcast next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.